and this is Lily and I'm really excited to bring you a new part of Lily High on Life with a fabulous guest. First of all, the message for today is that you decide how you feel. So you can feel good all the time. It's up to you to make the choice. You can focus on what you don't like and what makes you angry or upset, or you can choose to focus on the good things that are happening in your life and on the wonderful day and on the bright sunshine, if that's the very, very least. But remember, the choice is always yours. And today's guest I'm very excited to introduce you to because he has pretty much lived that all of his life. As a guest today, we have Bill Hargitay, and I'm excited for you to share Bill's story. But um, Bill, welcome to Lily High on Life. Thank you, Lily. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm going to ask you, first of all, to tell the listeners about what you are currently doing because for a man in retirement you are nowhere near retired so tell us about the product that you have created that's uniquely Australian and uniquely yours well I I tried to retire but I I found that um, my talent wasn't in gardening or growing tomatoes so I thought to myself, why not take on one of the most competitive industries in the world, which is uh, actually the alcohol industry. And there's a bit of a backstory to that. I travelled a lot in my previous career, um, spent a lot of time in duty-free stores and airport lounges, and it kind of dawned on me that um, Australia was never really represented in that premium spirit category. Uh, We've known all around the world for our beautiful wine, uh, in the past perhaps for our beer as well, but in that spirit category, you could be standing in the duty-free store in Heathrow, Dubai, Bangkok, London, Sydney for that matter, and you saw the same international brands. And we have such a fantastic reputation for the quality of our food, beverages, cleanliness of our water. So a little seed started to germinate in my mind, and when I retired, uh, my wife continued to to work, um, and I thought, well, I've got to do something. So I just started to fiddle with this little project and became more and more interested in it and now it's um, blossomed into Vantage Australia, the spirit of a nation. (laughs) I love the name. How did you come to that name? Well, the first product that we uh, placed uh, from that original idea was in Duty Free. And we have a a number of uh, graphics on our bottles in Duty Free, which we call the icons of Australia. And uh, they're really the vantage points of Australia um, that people know around the world. Please describe your bottle because it really is something outstanding. Thank you. Uh, The ones in Duty Free are one litre bottles. It's a preferred size in in that channel. And we have the icons of Australia there. We have a lovely frosted bottle uh, and a 3D type label on it, um, which I guess the flagship is Sydney Harbour. And it showcases the Sydney Harbour Bridge and behind it the whole cityscape of, of Sydney, including the Opera House with the lovely Blue Harbour in front of it and that's our flagship one and then we also have um, the 12 apostles here for victoria a very similar looking bottle in the frosting of it and the three-dimensional look 
perhaps a bit of artistic license in that there may not be exactly 12 apostles anymore. Um, and the third one um, depicts Ula, Uluru. Um, Ezrock, which it used to be called Ezrock, now it's now, only Uluru. Now it's Uluru or Ezrock as, as is still known in some ways. Yes. And there are so many interesting bottles as you walk through those bottle shops that this 3D effect that you have on the label is really outstanding in a very um, upscale, upmarket, classy kind of way. It doesn't scream at you, but you can see that it's something that's a little different and pretty awesome. Thank you. That's that's exactly the, uh, the approach we wanted to take. We didn't want to be... Um too in people's faces with traditional Australian themes. We wanted to be seen as premium, yet unmistakably Australian. Now, the other thing that's a real challenge is that you've taken on a new category, and um, I've spoken to different people where you've been involved, and they can't get their heads around. It's not a gin, it's not a vodka, it's actually a new category. So please tell us a little more about that. Sure, it's uh, it's because people like to put it into a certain category. Um, we've created created and pioneered the Australian botanical category and uh, when I looked for a point of difference in creating this product the, the clear point of difference was our beautiful uh, flora we have um you know, plant life as exotic as our animal life and that's where I turned for inspiration and I've used in my current products um, lemon myrtle Tasmanian pepperberries and finish it with a little bit of squeeze of uh, oil from Australian grey mandarins but what's fascinating for us is that um, there are over 20,000 Australian indigenous botanicals on the Australian National Plant Index. We don't have to make gin, vodka, whiskey, tequila we can do our own things with Australian botanicals and I'm passionate about that and And I think that message is starting to get through to people Yeah, that unique category of Australian botanicals hopefully you're going to hear more and more about because you're pushing it as you well should as being the uniquely Australian alcohol. Correct, correct. Now one of the, and so this whole project is is just one of the reasons that I wanted to introduce you to listeners because you have had you had nothing to do with the alcohol industry before that rather other than drinking it. You had no (laughs) idea how they operated or anything at all really and you decided no this is what I want to do and by George you went and actually did it I did and it's been a bit of a journey I've had lots of help along the way my my son's involved Um, one of our most successful aspects of getting people to know how to drink it we provide a cocktail book which was my wife's idea I sort of thought no no one's going to want a cocktail book Um, whole family's uh, involved whole family's involved but how do you go about where do you start researching when you're going into an industry that you've not been involved in before at all? Well, the first thing I did was the most basic of things. I looked at Wikipedia and I had a look at the list of each country's national spirits or national drinks and they were quite accurate. Um, you know, for Italy, for example, it had limoncello and grappa, um, you know, for the French with their Campari and Greeks with Uzo and for Australia, you know what it said? Um, 4X. Um, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's interesting, but I, I'm sure no disrespect to 4 because it's lovely on a nice hot day but it's not a spirit it's not in that category um, and I thought we could do better and uh, and that's what motivated me and the other thing that motivated me was um, you know I was born um, overseas came to Australia very young and um, I know 
a lot of our relatives back in back in Europe in Hungary. And uh, how many times can you take a stuffed kangaroo or a stuffed koala to your <laughs> uncle? In all honesty, especially when they enjoy drinking. <laughs> and that's and the that's a point of difference because. Our product you can share. When you take that as your gift from Australia, um, you can say proudly, this is from our country, made with our botanicals, and then you share that with family. And, and that's a difference to perhaps some of the other gifts that you can give. And I must say that I have tasted it, and on first tasting was absolutely converted and sold. Um, <laughs> I'm not a big alcohol drinker at all, but it's very pleasant and it goes down well. So, how long has it been now that you've been um, that you since you started? Well, it took a, it took me close to four years to create to pull all the bits of pieces of the threads together to actually go to market with it um, and then since um, we went to market it's just been over three years um, and the first 12 to 18 months of that um, was trying to gain some distribution for it so we've got quite good distribution now we're in all the airports around the country uh, except Brisbane we're in um, New Zealand in Auckland and Christchurch um, we're in our major package retailer here in Dan Murphy's uh, and we're hoping that will be in Coles in the very near future. So that that development is starting to take take root. And I know they're looking at you in Europe and America as well. So we're, we've got you at that little cusp point. Very much so. And that's something that's really exciting for us. Um, the opportunity to export the product was always um, one of the channels that I aspired Vantage to go. And, you know, I've lived overseas and worked overseas. And, and any country I've been in, People always have on their wish list a desire to visit Australia and, and we get lots of lovely visitors but the reality is not everyone's going to get here. So why not take a piece of We're Australia to them? Give him a little them. piece of Australia yeah. to them. So as wonderful as this story is, I'm sure there have been challenging spots along the way. Um, I'm not going to ask you about those because everybody goes through challenges. But what I am going to ask you to share with us is how does it feel now that you're at this point where um, you are being looked at overseas where you've got a product that is successful and this was something that came out of retirement not need necessity or anything else how are you feeling about yourself and the product um I'm very excited by the prospect of, uh, of securing some exports, but also very nervous about it. Um, you know, it's, it's like sending one of your children overseas to do good. Um, the, you know, each product uh, that we have, the, the domestic one, you mentioned the bottles before is also a beautiful bottle that depicts the uh, crossing of the Blue Mountains and uh, it's a detail from our National Gallery uh, an artist's impression of that uh, major sepia portrait in the National Gallery but uh, to see those bottles go overseas potentially even though each one from duty free goes overseas um, I get excited at that prospect but nervous at the same time and did did you speak to people before you jumped into this or did, was your wife did you tell your wife what you were going to do before you started doing it oh we we, we I certainly had uh, run the idea past her etc but my wife bless her she doesn't drink so she says whatever whatever you reckon is going to work with the uh, with the alcohol side of it uh, but uh, yes she she she's been a key supporter of it that's that's great did anybody poo poo it or tell you that you shouldn't do it or it wouldn't work yes i i got that from um from a few people who perhaps were on the already in the industry um and and they felt that um 
it was too hard a path to try and create a whole new category and and it has been uh, a harder path than to create something that's in the traditional genres and the beauty of our product is that it cuts across those genres you can use it with tonic water like a gin you can have it like a vodka just neat beautiful aperitif so what was it that um what were you thinking in your own mind when people were giving people in the industry that knew the industry were telling you not a great idea can't really succeed i've been there in other projects where people say that and uh, you say okay do i have confidence in this project um can i do it um I don't. I don't let it weigh me down. I just keep going. Yeah. Yep. So you don't let it let that negativity in in at all. You just know that one way or another you're going to do it. Well, as you said at your introduction, uh, you have a choice. You have a choice of being positive about something, and if you are, then you put your whole mind to it. Yeah. Um, let's just. Have, you mentioned earlier that you were the son of immigrants. You came here when you were four years old, and um, it's a tough thing to do. What do you remember from those early years as you were growing up? I believe you've got one brother. I have one brother who was born here. Yes, yeah. and you were four when you came out. Just just over four. four. Yes, yes. What was that like living as at that time as an, a migrant without language, without context? Did you come to family? Family? Did you come just out of the blue? How did you arrive in Australia? No, we, we, uh, my parents were refugees. We, um, we left Hungary during the uprising there in 1956. And uh, we, were, we escaped uh, actually lying down in the bottom of a Red Cross truck. Wow. And, uh, and then we were, had uh, people escorting us across the border into Austria and there we found the world very welcoming to refugees in those days and um, we ended up being in Austria for um, close to 12 months um, and then we were very fortunate to secure um, passage to Australia. We had um, uh, representatives there for Australia and uh, we came um, uh, all the way around. The Suez Canal was closed at the time and we came all the way around and uh, came to Melbourne and promptly got onto a train and, and went all the way to Bonagilla. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of Bonagilla. Where is it? Uh, Bonagilla is um, oh, up towards uh, Warrigal, I think, beyond Warrigal. It's a, it was a, a camp for new arrivals um, and there wasn't sort of um, a lot of support in those days. You were basically given a hut <laughs> and there was a central canteen and the rest was up to you. And uh, I remember my father coming up to Melbourne, hitchhiking to Melbourne to find work. And then once he'd got a week's pay, he came down to get us. And the first years were pretty tough. Um, you know, uh, for me as a kid, never wanted for anything. Parents were great. I didn't know um, I didn't know the language at first. So the first school years were tough. Getting into trouble for uh, putting my hand up for some birthday lollies when in fact it was my name day, which had been celebrated at home. So the school thought I was just cheating to get some lollies <laughs> so there was no real um was anybody teaching english to these new migrants that were coming no i, I uh, at the time um my father's um view was you will learn english at school at home you will speak hungarian um, and he was right you know I, I now have two languages i can go back to hungary and speak to people there and enjoy my time did your parents speak any english uh, over time over time they learned Good. it as well but they didn't undertake any classes uh, i was the translator in chief <laughs> yes understand that did that as well um so was there did you really get into trouble did they make you feel bad because you'd put your name 
team up for this these lollies? I, I, when I so got into trouble, I. I um I was called after the assembly to be told, well, your birth date's different to the day today. And I couldn't distinguish birthday from name day. I was just celebrating because at home they'd made a fuss over me. So I assumed (laughs) that I could get a bag of lollies at school. But no, there was no punishment or anything. It was just a clarification. Did you feel embarrassed or was it you did? did, You must have to remember it. And it's because those little things also set us off for later in life as well. That's right. Um, Was there. Did you do you remember if there were people there that were a bit kinder than others or nicer to you or made your childhood a little easier? To me personally, um, yes, I, I, I found that um, my parents mixed with a, a lot of um, Hungarian immigrants at the time, and there were a lot of interesting people. Um, as you were saying earlier, you know, the, you find so many people from different walks of life. And there was such a collection of people that came through different paths to get to Australia. But the one commonality was how much they all wanted to be here and, and yes. loved being here. And wanted to be Australian? And wanted to be Australian. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting with um, you know, sometimes the discussions and debates that we have about multiculturalism. Um, every one of my recollections is that my parents and their friends all wanted to be part of Australia and participate in all of the Australian dreams, but they kept their some of their traditions alive. And there really shouldn't be any... Um Disparate, disparity between wanting, being and keeping your heritage, being Hungarian and keeping the customs and the language and becoming an Australian as well. The two did, don't need to clash. Absolutely. I, they're not mutually exclusive. I think they actually build on each other. Complement each other. Yeah, yeah. very much so. And, uh, and we need a lot more of that nowadays because Australia has become so much of a melting pot, but people need to embrace that they're in Australia and want to become Australian at the same time as still respecting the culture that they come from. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that, yeah. And it's just it's just a different way... If, you, if if there's no um, if there's no uh, war going on between you know should I do this or that or where are my allegiances it just makes life easier and you don't have to have that disparity. Well, whenever there was sport on, we always buried for Australia. There you go. That was <laughs> a bonding experience. And having a little brother who was born in Australia, were you always close or did very close? We've always been very close. He's uh, we're both well well into our older years now. But uh, he's seven years younger than I am, and uh, we've been very close as brothers, and our families have been very close, and cousins uh, from the two families have been close. And uh, you know, he, he he has an abiding love for Hungary as well. He had the same. Um, uh, lecture from Dad. You know, you, you speak Hungarian at home, so he learned the language. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And um, so the two of you growing up seem to have had the same kind of spirit uh, because you did try to introduce some businesses into Hungary to, uh, to th- so you would always have that connection. Um, tell us about a couple of the things that you tried with your brother when you were really quite young, it sounded like. Uh, yes, we... we um 
we're still in the days when Hungary was under under communist rule. We we looked to introduce um, Pizza Hut <laughs> in, into Hungary, and, uh, and that was an interesting exercise because we we're trying to do that from Melbourne into Hungary via London, which uh, was where PepsiCo's headquarters were. Now, how old, were you, how old were you in your um, time? Well, by, by then I was probably in my um, 30s. And you'd, so you'd had 30s. a bit of business bit of ex- b- Bit of business experience. So we had the business experience, but probably didn't have the wherewithal to carry it out. <laughs> no, but that's <laughs> but part of what's so entrepreneurial about you. It's not a matter, it's, it's more a, an energy and a matter of, okay, let's get this done rather than <laughs> let's make it easy. It's just let's get let's it get done. Let's get it done. And, you know, the other, other interesting aspect for us was, um, for me personally, was the acquisition of um, Australia's icon brand with my business partner, um, Redhead Matches, which is uh, a brand that actually taught me a lot about the values of a brand. Now, were you working there and then bought the company or... Yes, I, I was the uh, managing director of the company and the uh, the overseas owners decided they wanted to, for whatever reason, exit the Australian market and the opportunity came up to buy the business and, and uh, we did exactly that. And you, um, I remember tell, you told me that you actually invented one of the products that I think is just oh so clever, <laughs> the, the long match. The long match. There had, there had been some long matches but they were no longer on the shelf when we acquired the company and uh, it was totally coincidental we had a a bit of a global fraternity of matchmakers for want (laughs) of a better term and I was visiting our our colleagues in Chile um, and uh, they had a a lovely poplar plantations which you can use for matches poplar trees and and they had a contract from Japan and uh, you know how the Japanese uh, like their chopsticks to be joined at the back and they tear it apart so they had a lot of um, uh, ch- chopsticks that they were making for the Japanese market, but a lot of them were breaking in production. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's interesting. If you put a, a nice redhead on top of that, that will make a nice long match. So that's exactly what we did. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way some of these things are born. Now, you talk about it being an, an iconic brand rather than just a product. What was it that you that you learned that sort of distinguished that? Well, what, what, what it taught me was that... Uh, a brand has a personality and that personality you're stewarding for the next generation and the generation after that the the original redhead brands um, came after um, World War Two it was only introduced in World War Two but the Bryant and May company first established itself here back in 1910 or 1901 and and 1910 the factory was completed so um, the uh, the lessons I learned from that, that you can introduce a brand, but it will take time for that brand to develop its own set of values. And, uh, you know, we, we saw the way we would get letters from people, we would get people sending us little trays that they made out of matchsticks, all sorts of interesting things. And, and that was all a response to that lovely redheaded uh, lady on the matchbox. How fabulous. <laughs> and they're still in business and they're still... Yes, we, 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 um, we divested the company um, and the only time it was Australian owned was when my business partner and I owned it. No other time despite what some people say Um, and uh, we divested it and uh, it's now um, owned by a company called Swedish Match and they continue to uh, prosper with the Redhead brand. How fabulous to be 
so intimately involved with something that is, in fact, a part of Australia's history. Absolutely, yes. And you got an economics degree. I do, yes. And then you had a couple of other interesting um, lives in the business world. Where did you go after university? I uh, I studied labour relations as, as one of the key areas, and I was always fascinated by, you know, the tug of war between labour and capital. So mm. I wanted to get involved in that. And as a young man, my my heart was on the, I suppose, the left a little bit, and uh, I was ready to join the union movement. (laughs) (laughs) And you weren't getting lectures from your father about the woes of socialism and... uh, No, surprisingly, from the fact that we came from a a communist country, I, Mm -hmm. I think he was more of a small less social democrat in his views mm-hmm. um, you know he believed in social programs mm-hmm. so he had no um, no issues with me wanting to join the trade union movement so I finished my degree and raced into trades hall and said here I am and everyone said who, who are you <laughs> <laughs> So Some thought, people have no idea. You were a visionary before your time. <laughs> so, so where did they put you? <laughs> so well, they didn't. And, and I realised that I had a choice here. I needed to eat. So I thought I might as well go to the other side. And, and uh, I steadfastly wanted to be in that industrial relations early burly. And uh, I took a role with um, Nissan Motor Car Company. And in those days, uh, Australia had, I think at that time, five different um, vehicle manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And the vehicle industry was a great great um great place to learn a trade like labor relations and uh, met some very very fine people uh, through that from both sides on the business side and on the union side uh, I'll never forget the first day I was taken down into the bowels of the factory through all the spot welders and sparks flying everywhere and I was taken up to this gentleman who was working on a jig spot welding and uh, the manager that took me down said Jack I've got another one for you to train <laughs> and uh, and Jack was um, the president of the vehicle building Union, uh, and he he was someone that uh, was the true unionist. He would never lead his people into any sort of false um, uh, path or political path. He just looked after his members, and on the other side, practicing. Um, for the management side, I suppose, because they looked at it as sides. I found that inspiring, that this man was, um, I think at the time he only had, um, you know, a state school education, but uh, I learned a lot of wisdom from him, which helped me in my management career. Absolutely, because it really is the people that you come across as you're learning yes. that really give you a sense of what's right and wrong in the world through their actions and through the way that they behave. Yes, yes, very much so. And Jack was inspiring. And uh, then I I was so interested in labour relations that I ended up being their industrial advocate in the Arbitration Commission, which was a great sort of career thing for me. And uh, and then I looked around... um, I was getting impatient uh, I was in a hurry with my career I guess and and I saw one of the most um, industrial relations strife ridden industries um, was the tobacco industry at the time and I became um, the uh, industrial relations manager of Philip Morris and then later on their operations director was that a before or after they had to start putting warnings on their Very much labels. before. In fact, um, uh, paper advertising and magazine advertising was still very much uh, uh, available. Uh, I think the TV restrictions came in probably a year or so before I, I, I joined there. But, you know, there's a different attitude to smoking then. There wasn't as much known about it. Did um, you smoke? Uh, I did, but um, it was 
because I wanted to smoke at the time, not because um, that, that industry you made you smoke. Else, um, yeah. And uh, and that was a great learning experience for me working for them, and they gave me an international perspective. Um, I, I moved from Philip Morris with the managing director who invited me across to as he became the managing director of Repco Australia and I moved across um, How long were you at Philip Morris? Five years. What an interesting time to sort of be there where they're going through that whole um, upheaval of products being evil or or causing harm. It, it, It had an interesting impact on the on the business um there was the impact of the um restrictions but what it did was it pulled the people together in the industry and and the union strife that they had um i like to think it was a bit of my doing as well but uh, i think a lot of it was because they realized that they needed to protect their own industry otherwise there wouldn't be work and so um, it's an interesting i guess concept when there's an external enemy as they saw it um, people pulled together and how what were you, what was your thoughts and feelings about it because what the, were you supporting the product did you know were you were aware of the harmful effects of smoking I, I think at that time um, when you were working for you know Philip Morris and potentially the other tobacco companies if they were aware of the the harmful nature of it um, and there was more and more evidence for it it wasn't always made public it took a long period of time for a lot of people to fight to make that sort of information uh, public but being there on the ground at that time in the middle of the company do you remember what how you actually felt about it did you feel through an allegiance to the company that you had to um sort of make make the company the hero or did you start having some misgivings about what was actually being charged or as a relatively young man who was in the fray what an amazing place to be do you it was it was a very interesting place at the time but uh, from my personal perspective i come back to your introduction again it was choice i i knew that if i smoked too much i didn't feel good so i i chose to to smoke what I thought was enough for me um, but no one made you smoke in that industry no no but you were working for a company part of your job was to increase sales and mitigate uh, any kind of obstruction so well, it was I mean it, it's all done it's all over nobody's yeah, going to be no, sued no, no, they're no. just war, war stories going no no back. no I, I understand but but my attitude to it at the time was smoking was much more prevalent in the community my parents smoked for example I grew up in a household where people smoked um, but it was a legal industry. It paid its taxes. Uh, it was supported. The government um, loved the revenue stream from it. Mm. Um, now, if the, there was the knowledge that it was so harmful, then there should have been steps taken to outlaw it. Uh, if it was addictive like another drug, then outlaw it. Don't let it be, uh, on the one side, a revenue stream for your government and on the other side kick it in the guts mm. <laughs> so that was my attitude at the time but you know after after looking at the steps that have been taken to try and um, 
discourage smoking, especially amongst the younger population. I, I would totally concur with that. And I haven't smoked for a long time. <laughs> I've, both my parents smoked quite heavily and just quit cold turkey at one stage. But I find it absolutely fascinating today where a packet of cigarettes costs you over $40. The whole package is displays of everything bad that could possibly happen to you and people are still buying and smoking cigarettes. I just find that it, amazing. It is amazing because, um, you know, in the old days when there was no warning on there, you could understand people, you know, taking legal action or whatever, but now there's really no no excuse. You're, you're told up front. And, you know, there are people in European countries that are living to over 100 and still smoking. Mm. So, you know, everything is as everything is. But... Um, and I enjoy the smell of smoke, but I don't want to smoke anymore. <laughs> so it's just uh, it's just a really interesting area. Um, and it is still legal, as you were saying. Still legal. And, and taxes yeah. are still being, uh, being made by the government from it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So what's it like now to work with your son? I mean, working, you've got a son and a daughter? I've got two, two boys. Two and, boys. Uh, and you're working and with daughter. one. daughter, uh, yeah. Um, Andrew come into the business uh, he came in after I started uh, and uh, and that's been a delight that's been a, a, I suppose in a way an unexpected delight of being able to spend as much time as we do together and he's turning out to be a very polished young man he's over in the US at the moment meeting our prospective um, partners in the US and, um, and also in Europe and getting engaged and all of that so. well he's uh, he's meeting the parents of a lovely young lady where the, the engagement bit happens where we're, we're <laughs> We're holding our breath to see, <laughs> but, but it's, uh, it's it's a lovely feeling to have you to be able to spend that time with your son. It's a great feeling, and, and he loves the product, um, and he knows it intimately, um, and he, he sort of takes care of me a little bit. The old retiree, so he won't leave, let me lift boxes and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, which is kind of nice. That's really it. Really yeah. is lovely, and you've got to learn that you really don't want to do that at this age because you had a little accident over the weekend and your ribs a bit sore but it's no fun after it so there are other ways to get things done other than doing them yourself so. it, it, it can get tiring particularly when you're doing holiday shows like the Good Food and Wine show but there's nothing I love more than actually doing tastings with the customer base that are enjoying this product and you get a real buzz out of the positiveness that people respond to our product with it. As they really, try it. If, if ever I'm feeling down wondering if this botanical concept as a new category for Australia is going to work, I just have to do some tastings in a store or at the airport or at a show and it reinvigorates me because the, the response is absolutely overwhelmingly positive mm. and was your was Andrew doing something else and then saw what you were doing and came over or how did all of that uh, happen uh, Andrew um was flying aeroplanes at the age of 16 much to my my uh, horror uh, he he got his pilot's license at the age of 16 for the small aircraft and his ambition was to be in the um, the airline industry and, and work his way up to um, being a pilot um, and um, we didn't realize because we'd never been tested for it until he had his CASA exam that he had a slight color blindness and it precluded him from moving through all those levels so he gave up on the idea of being a pilot but then um, he applied to be an air traffic controller because there was a different 
uh, grade for um, for health or for for the eyesight, and um, he spent I think two years in terms of um, the application process is so stringent with psychological Mm. testing all sorts of uh, testing for it and he got accepted into the intake uh, for air traffic controller so he passed with flying colours very nice and then um, they actually since then have introduced uh, another issue with colour blindness so precluded Mm. him from doing that as well so I said to him don't worry son you can spend lots of times at the airports with your dad and we'll sell booze (laughs) (laughs) And that sounds like a lot more fun. (laughs) Now, I haven't met your wife yet, but you always speak very highly and very nicely of her as well. So um, uh, what? uh, just tell me quickly how you met her. Well, we've got married uh, later in life um, and... um, well, she, she's someone that inspires me in her own way. She does um, counsels victims of crime, and, and that's a very uh, demanding uh, profession. Mm, um, she works hard, um, and she, she helps people reestablish their life after sometimes vicious crimes or abuse, um, and, um, and she continues to, continues to do that. Um, and it's, you know, I guess... Jobs that uh, some people can do and some people can't. I could never do it. But it sounds like you both support each other emotionally, and we do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we do absolutely. And she um, she supports me. Although I would like it if she'd taste a little bit more vantage, but she won't. <laughs> Tell her you're trying to get her drunk so you can have your way with her. For goodness sake! Oh, I haven't tried um, that one yet. Phil, this has been absolutely lovely, and the time has just really flown by because we're just about there where we've got to end the show so well thank you so much Lily I really appreciate it and been enjoying talking to you as well and I'm going home I've got a little vantage left in the freezer (laughs) where I keep it and um, I'm looking forward to having a little bit of that thank you so much look forward to hearing more wonderful things and um would love to have you back sometime and uh, and hear about the next stage because you're certainly young enough to keep going for more than another 20 years or so <laughs> and you and it doesn't sound like you're slowing down at all thank you so much lily appreciate it thank you so much for being part of lily 